0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, South Korean President Moon Jae-in returns from the north, making peace in our time noises. How long will this latest thaw last? My guests Samira Shackle and Michael Goldfarb will be discussing this and day's other top stories, including the release from prison, for the moment at least, of former Pakistani Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif, Facebook's latest effort to look like it's doing something about fake news, and... Why Venice is threatening to issue fines to discourteous tourists. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist and broadcaster Michael Goldfarb and Samira Shackle, a journalist whose writing has appeared in The Guardian, Deutsche Welle and Monocle, among many others. Welcome both. Uh, And we will start with North Korea, which appears to be having one of those weeks in which it wants to be friends with everyone. South Korea's president Moon Jae-in has returned from a trip north of the border, which included the first ever visit to Pyongyang by a South Korean leader, reporting that North Korea is seeking swift denuclearization. And that North Korean leader Kim Jong Un wants a second summit with U.S. President Donald Trump. Um, Michael, we will come to the details shortly. The the very fact of Moon Jae-in's visit—how big a deal is that? Well,
1: this—it's really hard to tell, because that's the answer to every question about North Korea. You know, it's it—it <laughs> it, it isn't even a month ago that we were having reliable reports that North Korea has done literally nothing on. denuclearization since the June summits or whatever they were in in, in the late spring. Uh, We read that Moon Jae-in's approval ratings were going down. Trump had stopped talking about it, except to occasionally say, well, (laughs) Kim likes me um, (coughs) in, in tweets. And then suddenly we have this again. I worry, as I did the last time, that this is all, it's I, its not even being staged. I think that we've reached a point now in international relations where people just make and create photo opportunities and hope that this forces things forward. Now, particularly in Korea, where once upon a time it could take years of Sherpas working very hard and negotiating and boring, boring, long discussions in places nobody knew they were happening and then you might get a little movement now famously there used to be months-long
0: conversations
1: <clears throat> about the shape of the table and and the, and and what fork they would use precisely and now you know you, you take the president of one country he goes he gets lots of pictures and this is supposed to create the momentum that you know these detailed discussions about the shape of the table we're supposed to make so this is the era we live in and i don't know that there's actually anything substantive behind this new set of pictures which are a supplement to the last ones where the two of them played in a sandbox in the dmz it it really did look like a sandbox that little strip that was no man's land and they were jumping you know they were walking through it
0: Uh, Samira, do you get the impression that everybody that is a party to these conversations, which is to say North Korea, South Korea, and the United States, and doubtless the the watching wider world, uh, all mean the same thing when they talk about denuclearization? Because I I get the impression that as far as America's concerned, that means that North Korea will no longer be a nuclear power. I find it quite difficult to believe that that's what North Korea thinks.
2: Yeah, I'd absolutely agree on that. And I think uh, there is... Earlier this year, when uh, North Korea uh, dismantled one of their nuclear missile testing sites, they didn't allow any international inspectors in, which is a narrative we've heard before, of course. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that that's a clear grounds to question how far the two sets of aims are the same, as you say. And I think the other thing is in this, um, you know, this, this idea that North Korea is really, really keen to genuclearize uh, and they're going to get rid of all this stuff and get rid of this nuclear base uh, as long as the US reciprocates now that's the kind of nub because I suspect there is another area that's going to, the the two sides are going to really be poles apart so that in the same way that uh, what the U.S. wants is for North Korea to completely give up being a nuclear power at all, which they probably don't want. I think what North Korea wants is the lifting of all international sanctions and for America to withdraw all their troops from Seoul, which I also don't think they really want to do. So, yeah, this, you know, this, it's kind of two, a, two quite far apart positions, I well,
1: think. Exactly. And they, say it, and they, don't, they aren't even <clears throat> specific enough to say what they mean by reciprocal, you know, and, and again, so you have the, the, the power of these image, I mean, you can say they're powerful, you can say they're comic, I don't care. But I mean, you have these images, they're going all around the world, we're talking about it today on Midori House, and but there's no, no, nothing substantive. Oh, well, we'll get rid of our, our nuclear stuff, but you have to leave the Korean peninsula. And you know this may explain why President Moon's um, popularity ratings were down, because a lot of people in South Korea probably feel it's not time quite yet for the US mm-hmm. to withdraw its tens of thousands of military personnel who essentially guarantee South Korea's security um so i i think again it, it's for show and not necessarily for real change.
2: And I think that reciprocates, uh, that word leaves a lot of wiggle room, doesn't it? A, uh, leaves a lot of space to say, uh, from the North Korean perspective, oh, well, we were, we were ready to do all this stuff, but, you know, we weren't given enough back.
0: Um, it, it, so, Michael, do you think Donald Trump's Nobel Peace Prize is back on the table as of this week or, or, or not?
1: Well, <laughs> so long as there's democracy in the US, and so long as Robert Mueller is still... Conducting his investigation, 2021 is a year after the next presidential election. This is and when
0: Mike Pompeo is said, suggesting the deadline for denuclearization, whatever that might be. I, I should will be.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's all going to become part of the politics of, of the issue. I mean, if Donald Trump is still president in 2020, and you have to use the word if, um, and he chooses to run again, and you have to use the word if. Then who knows what will happen, because it would probably be the thing he needs, one of the things he would need to say, to prove that he's not a completely loose cannon, insane person, which is, of course, what many people in the world, I'm trying to be objective here, (laughs) uh, what many people in the world think of him.
0: Um, Samira, Donald Trump has apparently, or he made the suggestion some while ago, it became a thing this week. He has had another one of his his diplomatic initiatives, which will be of interest to you as somebody who has covered refugee and migration issues extensively. Um, Spain's Foreign Minister, Joseph Borrell, uh, claimed that when he spoke to Trump earlier this year, Trump suggested that Spain build a wall across the Sahara Desert.
2: (laughs) Totally reasonable. (laughs) Well, again,
0: given your expertise in in, in migrant issues, that had pretty much... Solve the problem, wouldn't
2: it? I think so. Yeah. Why well, don't know why we're not doing it It's more and quicker? I know. How hard yeah. could it be? But no, I, I mean it's obviously <laughs> ludicrous. <laughs> I think uh, the Spanish minister who who said it sort of his phrasing was uh, we we need to not be closing ports and building walls, uh, and I think yeah you know it's not gonna it, it's it's not uh, it's. The problem doesn't exist because the access is there. Uh, But I think you can kind of add it to a roll call of weird stuff that Trump says that you have politicians kind of dripping out at some point incredulous. I remember (laughs) Theresa May saying, um, Theresa May not renowned for her kind of, um, you know, uh, indiscretions really saying um, that he'd advised her to sue the EU to fix Brexit.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm, I'm amazed that that hasn't been attempted either. Um, we, we should move along now, however, and look at Pakistan, the former Prime Minister of which, Nawaz Sharif, is a free man, having been sprung by a court two months into a ten year sentence on corruption charges. Sharif and his daughter Mariam and her husband, who were imprisoned alongside him, were released when their sentences were suspended as part of the appeal process. They have been received back home in Lahore by jubilant supporters flinging rose petals, as is traditional among Young politicians who have been rumbled with their fingers in the till. Sharif claims that the charges against him are a politically motivated charade. Um, Samira, first of all, just go back to what he was actually convicted of if you could remind us.
2: So it was over uh, some revelations that came out in the Panama Papers, if you remember those, mm-hmm. uh, which was about the ownership of, uh, I think it was four luxurious London flats kind of park lane apartments um, and they were all in the names of his his daughter and son and the allegation was basically that um, there was no explanation of how they came by these these apartments, and it was kind of how how did you buy these on a government salary, effectively? Which is is slightly off because they they were an extremely rich industrial family anyway, but um but nonetheless uh, that that was the that was the charge. The reason it's been thrown out now is because there wasn't really any evidence to link Nawaz Sharif himself to the apartments, and I think the thing is, as you say, it's often a line taken by corrupt politicians. Um, that it's politically motivated but I think in this case both things can be true that there is most likely some corruption going on there um, it's, it's something that's been said about Nawaz Sharif and basically all other top politicians in Pakistan for generations um, that he's corrupt but it also probably is true that there is an element of uh, political motivation certainly in the timing of the charges and the fact that Uh, he and his daughter, who's his political heir apparent, were conveniently convicted and put in jail just a couple of weeks before the election and then let out soon afterwards when they realised there actually wasn't enough evidence, so I think both things are true there. It
0: it, it is enough to make a a sceptical person wonder the timing in particular, but but, but would his imprisonment have made any difference to the result
2: do you think? I think it probably would have, yeah there was, um, so the EU monitoring mission, uh, which was monitoring the elections in Pakistan, concluded that it wasn't a level playing field, that was their words, because um, it wasn't just that uh, Nawaz and his daughter were put in prison it was also uh, then there was a sort of weird temporary rule introduced that you couldn't air speeches by convicted criminals or something so so there was a huge limitation in media attention for his party and a load of party activists were also temporarily put in prison while he was being put in prison uh, to prevent kind of big rallies and so on so I think it really did tilt the balance in that way probably although his party is still the main opposition
0: what what does he do now is is, it, is he still a political force potentially
2: he is i think he he'll have to be a political force from the sidelines because he's been barred from public office uh for for life uh, associated to these corruption charges. It was over not disclosing something or other. Uh, his daughter is also barred from, from public life, but she uh, could potentially lead the party. They can both make a lot of noise from the sidelines, um, which Imran Khan was quite well-practised at before his premiership, so it would be interesting to see how he handles it from the other side. Uh,
0: Michael, it, it does open up, uh, or at least cast still further light on a, a wider issue here, which is the, the extent to which uh, the London property market uh, is being used as something of a money laundromat and, and, and let us proceed on the assumption that Mr Sharif and his family uh, acquired these properties with entirely legitimately gotten gains, wealthy family, as Samira points out. Is there a problem to an extent that something needs to be done about it?
1: Well, yes, um, in, in, two, in two respects. I mean, one is that London property is being used as either a laundromat for um, the proceeds of ill-gotten gains by various criminal groups or, you know, people who are just milking their governments, uh, treasuries dry, is not a new thing. Um, The London property boom after the 2008 crash Mm. was almost entirely created to allow people to I mean, flats here in these buildings, I mean, clearly, uh, Nawaz Sharif's family doesn't, I don't know how much time they spent here, probably not very much. They they are the equivalent of buying a gold bullion bar with you know an ensuite bathroom and a lift and a concierge downstairs to get you tickets if you ever happen to be in London they are simply another form of currency and there's a huge business in London and and also in New York now but London is, is the template for it, where you have property speculators like the notorious Candy Brothers who on Park Lane have built these extraordinary apartments. You know, the cheapest one starts in the in the mid-seven um, figures. And you say, well, people are buying them off-plan, and they don't come and live. And, you know, it, it's a terrible, terrible diversion of... Energy in a city that is starved of affordable housing, and you know the other thing is, the British government doesn't ask too many close questions about the origin of your money. If you wish to buy a flat here, you can buy a flat. And in fact, I mean, I can even remember uh, Boris Johnson when he was the mayor, Boris. You know. He was mayor before he was briefly foreign secretary, saying, We want people to bring their money here. We don't care. And in fact, you have this extraordinary development boom, not all around us where we're sitting in the Midori House studios, um, empty flats, and they just represent a, a, an asset. They don't represent. A dwelling, I guess for human it, it, habitation. It, it's
0: that combination of factors isn't it as you point out the fact that the UK doesn't necessarily ask terribly many detailed mm. questions about where money comes from and the fact that Britain is attractive to investors because its laws and its institutions are solid in, in a way if you, if you buy property in London mm. or in Britain you know you will still own it in 50 years it's not necessarily something you can say about um, some other countries there are countries, Samira, or jurisdictions which do actually uh, take a stand against this. So there's some restrictions on foreigners buying property in Switzerland. Uh, new Zealand uh, is moving to ban non-resident foreigners mm. from buying property. Are, are are actions that drastic? Well, I guess the first question, and should be the first question with all the with all new laws, is would it actually work?
2: It's hard to know, I guess, isn't it? But. It- I think it's hard, I think in the context as, as uh, Michael just set out in London where you have uh, so many of these luxury properties being built uh, that often don't get inhabited at the same time as a kind of crippling housing crisis and shortage, it's hard not to feel some sympathy with the New Zealand idea to just kind of ban non-resident uh, foreigners from buying it. But, you know, as you say, there's no guarantee it works. I think there's also a risk of laying too much blame for flawed housing markets and so on at, simply at the door of, uh, of foreign buyers. So it's quite a quite tricky ground. But I was quite struck by a statistic I read that um, a study that was done in 2014 found that that year um, average house prices in England and Wales would have been 20% lower if it hadn't been for, um, for foreign Foreign buyers which I thought was really interesting because that's a pretty big percentage. Yeah.
1: And 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 the no, I mean the knock on from here is that I mean now finally mm-hmm. you, you see property prices going up in other parts of the country as London mm-hmm. comes down. But you know, New Zealand I think actually may be onto the right thing because um some fairly notorious characters like Peter Thiel mm. the um, Silicon Valley now a New Zealand citizen I believe yeah. well this is what he did <laughs> <He's planning laughs> for the p- apocalypse p- you know of the he, he's a venture capitalist and he's mm-hmm pretty right-wing, he's an Ayn Rand devotee, and he's convinced the end times are upon us, and when they arrive, he wanted to be in some obscure part of New Zealand because it's well, beautiful. Well, I, I, I feel and duty-bound
0: says, as an Australian to suggest that he wants to be somewhere where the end times have already happened. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, our New Zealand-born studio manager shaking his head. I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble after this. I said in fact possibly as soon as the short break we're about to take. I'm bracing myself for a burst of ear-splitting feedback. Uh, you are see, listening to Midori, with me, Andrew Muller, along with Michael Goldfarb and Samira Shackle. Coming up next is Facebook's war on fake news itself. Fake news.
1: Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's the Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore.
0: And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Melista, with me are Samira Shackle and Michael Goldfarb. It is by now well understood, even by Facebook, that Facebook has become the most efficient means of dispersing hoaxes and propaganda ever devised. By way of cleaning up its news feeds, Facebook is preparing what it calls a war room, which will combat fake news, it says here. This is an office somewhere in the Facebook campus, which will house about 20 employees looking out for bogus stories and bogus accounts. The intention appears to be to have... Have this up and running before the U.S. midterm elections in November, uh, Samira. How, how reassured are you by the fact of a, a conference room somewhere in the Facebook edifice with about twenty people in it?
2: I mean, not that reassured. <laughs> 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 at least they are. Um, at least they are quite highly qualified people. But um, it's like engineers and and so on, like watching the you know spikes and unusual activity but I think the thing is that it's tricky I mean I, when I was reading about this that that it's um, you know they've got various new tools to see if lots of fake accounts are being created or or if there's a spike of activity around a particular story but there's there's so much judgment involved in that and if you've ever kind of um, kind of thought about what the process of Facebook moderation just in a normal sense involves I mean it's obviously a massive task and so uh, the, the kind of um, the level of of kind of um judgment that must be happening constantly uh just seems like it's way above what 20 people can do i mean i know that it's, it's one part of a host of measures but still uh, michael is,
0: is there something uh theatrical about this as samira correctly points out there are other measures in place is is the war room just being created because they basically needed something there could be a picture of
1: well probably i mean if you think about I mean, they claim two billion plus users i don 't know how many use every day, but in America, I would have thought you know seventy eighty percent of the adult population is on Facebook at some point of every day. So you're doing a couple hundred million people. The essence of, of the whole experience, and I'm, I spend a lot of time on Facebook, I, I'm sad to say, um, the essence of the whole experience is the speed with which stuff goes by you. So if you, know, you see something and it's a picture of, you know, Donald Trump, whatever, and you immediately share it out. So once it's out there, it's out there, nothing's going to stop it. Um, you know, and, and the measures that are necessary have to do with the source, don't they? I mean, if a picture come, is posted, if it doesn't have certain timestamps or some kind of coding in the image that immediately says what its where its origin is and whether it's in fact in the, its original state, how can you begin to judge? I, I just don't know how this can work. Um, that said, you know, in America... We we do much better to have you know a war room of independence at Fox News, and every time somebody opened his mouth blithering some lie, they you know you, the war room would come charging out live on air and say, "That's a lie. You can't say that." You know, I mean, because it, it, Fox News probably has done more to distort American political mm. sensibilities than what you see on Facebook. I don't know. This seems to me in in an unsolvable problem that facebook as an experience and why it's become so popular people you know you you either have to destroy it and start over again which nobody is going to do or you just have to accept that a tremendous amount of what you see is not true and it's on the user to say Hmm, that seems just a little bit outside we, we, the realms then of reality. We unfortunately
0: run up against that eternal fact of the human condition, which is that people will believe what they wish to believe, and it's very, very hard to dissuade them from doing that. um Samira, do you get the sense that Facebook and other social media platforms are starting to get the idea that if they don't fix this, someone else is going to fix it for them? There's a story out uh, doing the rounds today that the government here in the UK uh, is thinking of establishing an mm. internet regulator, which may start to do things or it may start to enforce rules which treat social media platforms more like publishers and holding them actually responsible for what appears on their websites
2: yeah absolutely I think that that's that certainly is something that 's in mind, although I wonder in the u s if it might look quite different because particularly facebook it 's kind of um its policy on on moderation and how it uh, how it filters its content is so much founded in the in the u s obviously it 's a company that 's that 's headquartered in the u s and it 's very much um culturally founded in the in the First Amendment and much more unfettered speech than we have in the UK or in many European countries, actually. And so uh, I think there's there's kind of several questions about the UK regulator, which is firstly, um, which is something that's been raised before around tech companies and, and regulation, which is kind of, ha- you know, how much jurisdiction do they have when these companies are uh, headquartered in the US? But there's also, um, I think there's that real kind of mismatch in um in uh, in sort of judgment on those things. And I don't know whether you would ever have that kind of regulation in the US, which is the biggest markets, but I think that's certainly something that tech companies are worried about and are seeing a kind of re- real-world political backlash that will not allow them to self-regulate See, quite I, so I th- much. I,
1: I think it's a waste of time. I, I, before the internet, before, he, before the internet and before... Um, he was prime minister briefly of your country which malcolm, one malcolm, Every, turnbull. everybody's been malcolm, prime minister yeah. briefly malcolm, of Tur- malcolm turnbull <laughs> famously was involved as a lawyer in a case with a british spy who had emigrated mm-hmm. to australia and he wrote a book which he wasn't supposed to do because he signed the official secrets act called spycatcher Nobody in Britain, no newspapers in the late 80s, was allowed to discuss this case, which the whole world was talking about because the money shot in this 350-page book was that MI5 had worked to destabilize the Wilson government in the 1960s because MI5 was full of right-wingers and they thought, not unreasonably, that Wilson was a left-winger, although he wasn't a tool of Moscow. Anyway, so we had this weird situation, this is pre-internet, where people were talking about it, but they couldn't talk about it, and and the same thing will happen if they try to regulate Facebook and Twitter. If we're talking about it in America, they'll be talking about it here, even if they don't talk about it on Facebook or Twitter.
0: Okay. well, finally tonight to Venice, a city which is growing increasingly vexed by the tourists on which its economy depends. The issue, it appears, is not so much the numbers of visitors as the type of visitors. And by way of dissuading the boorish, slovenly rabble that Venetians believe are lowering the tone, city mayor Luigi Brugnaro has proposed a regime of fines from 50 to 500 euros for the offences of sitting or lying on the ground. This would be in addition to already extant edicts governing decorum, including laws against dipping toes in canals or being ostentatiously drunk. Although, of course, if you're being ostentatiously drunk, you might end up dipping more than your toe in the canal. But I guess at that point, uh, the, effect, the, the punishment has fit the crime. Um, Samira, are we generally in favour of this, imposing fines to to force tourists <laughs> to, to, to buck their ideas up?
2: Well, I don't know, but I, I can sort of you know, you said it's not the volume of tourists in Venice but I do think the volume of tourists in Venice is probably a lot to handle if you live there sometimes 60,000 a day and it's not very big Venice so um, I don't know I think, I think that you can kind of understand the, understand the frustrations of the residents and you've seen a kind of um, sweep of some anti-tourist feelings certainly across Europe I know mm-hmm. there are protests in Barcelona and, and so on so perhaps it's part of that same picture
0: um, Michael, what do you think? I mean, I, I would certainly favour, not just against tourists, but just general sort of spot fines for, you know, clothes with writing on it. Being um being annoying. That, 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 yeah, just, yeah, just yeah, crossing any number of a bunch of arbitrary guidelines set by myself. Uh, I, I think there should be fines imposed for, but I, could, I do perceive certain difficulties with the... Uh, the actual imposition of them.
1: I I just had this image of domestic discord. I'm sitting on the the steps of the Academia Bridge, which is really (laughs) a lovely bridge, and waiting for my wife, who is inevitably a little late. And that's not sexist. She's just, you get lost in Venice. And she's a few minutes late finding the Academia Bridge. And I get fined 50 euros because I'm sitting down because I've been walking all day and I want to sit on the bridge. Look, the absurdity of Venice is this. If they want to have fines... Why not just find in advance and find everybody on these massive cruise ships, which have no business being in the lagoon, disgorging five, ten thousand 10,000 people a day who don't even stay and spend money in restaurants because mm-hmm. they've paid for their food on the ship. Just charge all of them an extra thousand euros just to dock there, and they'll stop docking, and you won't have this crush of people. You know, um, that that's Venice. And Venice is a particular case. You know, look, I I feel very lucky. People don't know Today's my birthday.
0: Oh, happy birthday. And I'm so
1: much older than either of you. (laughs) And I feel very, very lucky, blessed is the right word, that I got to see most of Europe in the 1970s and early 1980s, before this mass wave of tourism happened. So... I have a good sense of what it's like to, to walk alone in a city and when it's hot, maybe sitting down, even on a curb, but being the only person doing it and being young enough that people say, "Ah, oh, well, he's just wandering in a flaneur or whatever. I I think that mass tourism, particularly in, in European cities like Barcelona and Venice and Rome, you know, needs to be addressed at a much higher level, and I think that people who come here need not to, you know, it's like they're it's like they're buying a Lacoste alligator on their shirt, <laughs> and it may even not even be a Lacoste shirt, but it, it may be a, a fake one. They don't know what people don't know what they're seeing. They don't know what they're coming to see, and I think uh, mass tourism needs to be addressed by, you know, the authorities to say, look, if you're coming here, you need to know why and what you're seeing, and then you'd have a different kind of tourist coming. I think.
0: Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Michael Goldfarb, happy birthday again, Michael, and Samira Shackle, thank you both for joining us. Uh, The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, it's The Urbanist. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.